Let me tell you a story. It's a story about an enterprising soccer fan who made heads turn by uh, finding a way to circumvent the rules that were preventing him from enjoying his favorite team. Now his name is, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Ali uh, Dimerica. Uh, that's probably not right. But anyway, his, his nickname is Crazy Ali. He is well known in his area for his passionate fandom for the local soccer club. He is so ardent a fan that Ali had been banned from the stadium for a year due to a misdemeanor from a previous fan-related incident. Now, they didn't tell us what it was, but I'm sure it had a little something to do with an opposing fan of some sort. So he has been uh, kept out of the stadium for a year. So on the day of an important match against a rival team, Crazy Ali found a solution. He went and rented a crane and then lifted himself up high enough to see over the stadium wall. He said this, he said, the match was very important for our team. I had to go to the police station to sign a paper to show that I am not watching the match in the stadium. Then I quickly went to rent the crane. Social media in the area was full of pictures of a jubilant Ali cheering for, from his perch. Ultimately, however, the police were summoned and Ali was forced to lower the crane. Nevertheless, he still ended the day on a high note. The stunt only cost him the equivalent of $89. He wasn't cited or fined by the authorities. And his team won 5-0. to zero. When I was reading that story, I, something came across my mind. And this is what came across my mind. If it means something to you, you'll get creative to make sure you don't miss out. If it means something to you, whatever that something is, you are going to get creative to make sure you don't miss out on that something, whatever it may be. Now keep that in mind because I want to read you two verses right out of the middle of, the, uh, of Mark chapter 2. Because I believe these verses are really encapsulate the, the entire point of what Jesus is going to show us in Mark chapter 2. So in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, Jesus is talking. He says, Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. Now in our passage today, Jesus is going to be proclaiming some things about himself and, and essentially about what it means to follow the Lord, to be a child of the King. But, but as he says these things, he essentially is saying, hey, I am going to blow your mind. That's what he says. I am going to blow your mind. I am going to make you have to overcome some of your personal obstacles. Jesus says, I'm going to share with you what it looks like to follow me. I'm going to share with you who I am. I'm going to share with you what you should be doing. And those things are going to stretch you. 
They are going to stretch you. Now, my guess is that most of us are not like Crazy Ali, who is willing to do anything to get around or under or over an obstacle. Crazy Ali has the right attitude, but I would suggest that most of us are not like Crazy Ali. I go to the supermarket. I put items in my cart. I'm walking through. I get to the line that says 10 items or less. I count my items. If I have 11 items, I don't go down the 10 items or less. It's an obstacle, that big bear. Now, someone else will go down there with three buggies full. But not me. Not me. I'm like, nope. Got 11 items. Can't go down the 10 items or less. However, sometimes if the items are the same item, I conclude that as one item. So I do kind of sneak around in every once in a while. But nonetheless, maybe you have had this problem. I went to the doctor this week, Friday. He looked at me and said, you had a great Christmas. I said, yes, I did. How would you know? You gained 10 pounds. I'm like, yes, yes, that is awesome news. Maybe you go and you look at this little square thing on your floor that you stand on, and that number keeps growing. And you think to yourself, there's no way. I can't lose any weight. I'm give up. I give up. I like Oreos. Forget it. You know, forget it. I'm, I'm done with it. I'm, I'm just giving in. That's too great an obstacle. So often I think we live as if, if God can't do things for us or through us. So often we live as if God has no power in our lives, and yet all through Scripture we are told over and over again, you can overcome these obstacles because I'm with you. In fact, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is praying this prayer, and this one verse in that prayer is so powerful, especially how the message puts it. God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His Spirit deeply and gentle within us. I love how that is put in the message. Essentially saying, hey, God can do those things that are beyond even your wildest dreams. The biggest thing you could dream up, God can do greater than that. You, you can't even grab hold of how great God, how great God is and how great of things God can do through you, for you, and in you. So in our text, we're going to see Jesus constantly, over and over and over again, challenging the norms. Even the religious experts are told that they have put up barriers to the truth that they need to tear down. So today, Jesus is going to confront the religious experts with some mind-blowing proclamations about what being a child of God should look like in a world that is full of hurting, sick, and lost people. And by the way, maybe some of these proclamations will stretch your mind too. You probably know them, but maybe you've not allowed them to really take root in your life. Maybe these will stretch you too this morning. So let me set the scene for the first one. Jesus is preaching in this house, and, and, and it is so full that you can't even move or budge. I mean, you are stacked in there like sardines. But there's someone who comes and they know, hey, my, my friend needs Jesus' help, but they cannot get through the crowd. It's just too packed. And so in the midst of Jesus' preaching, all of a sudden, pebbles of dirt start hitting him on top of the head. 
And you're like, what in the world is going on? And you look up and you see hands digging away at the roof because there were dirt and grass and all sorts of stuff at that time. So they're digging away the roof. And then all of a sudden you see this mat coming down filled with something you don't know what. And all of a sudden it lands right in front of Jesus and you see on the mat, hey, it's that guy who's paralyzed. Right there he is on the mat. And so in the midst of Jesus' preaching, this guy comes through the ceiling because his four friends lower him down through the ceiling. And Jesus looks at him. He says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now keep that in mind because I want you to listen to what the experts of the law think about that. Verse Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. <clears throat> now, the experts of the law actually get a truth right. Only God can forgive sins. The problem is they don't recognize who God is. They look at Jesus and they say, whoa, blasphemer, charlatan, liar. You're not God. You can't forgive sins. But the passage goes on and Jesus says, verses 8 and following, Jesus immediately knew what they were thinking. And so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? So I'll prove to you that the, man, that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. <coughs> now Jesus knew their thought. He knew what they're thinking. He knew that they were struggling with this. And he knew that they did not recognize who he really was. And so when he hears all that, he essentially says to them and to us by extension, hey, watch this. Watch this. I'm going to show you that I, in fact, am God and can forgive Sins. Now you might be looking at this text and you're thinking to yourself, well, why didn't he say, you're forgiven of sins, stand up and walk? Well, he could have. But he does the thing that they can see. I could say you're forgiven of sins, but that doesn't mean you're forgiven of sin. But if I say be healed and you walk away from, para from, from being paralyzed completely whole, that is a whole different ball game. And so Jesus heals him to show that he has power over sin, which leads us to our first proclamation, which you will not be surprised by. But here's the first proclamation of Jesus in this text. I am God. That's what he says. I am God. I am God. Now we have talked about this quite a lot in the past few weeks, but Jesus wants them to know and he wants us to know that I can forgive and I can heal. I have power over creation and I have power over eternity. In fact, he has to remind his disciples this over and over. They're there, they see this, but he still has to remind them. If you remember John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me, he says, has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? He's saying to his disciples, I'm showing you, I've always been showing you the Father. Why do you keep asking? Why do you keep asking? If they accepted the claim, that is the religious leaders, and that is us too, if they accepted the claim that everything in their lives had to be changed. If they accepted the claim that Jesus is God, then everything has changed. All they thought they knew, they really didn't know. It was worthless. The world that they had created, with all the laws they had established, it was all turned upside down if Jesus is God. 
In fact, how true it is for you and me. If we accept Jesus as God of our lives, God of all things, it changes everything. If we accept that Jesus is God, our life has to be transformed. Everything about us has to be moved around and, and altered. The knowledge we think we have is found lacking. The values this world proclaims are capsized and are worthless. See, I would ask you, do you really believe Jesus is God? Because so often what we actually do is we put God in a little box. There's actually a song, but I'm not going to sing the song. But we could put God in a little box. Because if God's in a little box, I can control God. And so when we need Him, we take Him out. God, will you bring healing to me? God, will you get me out of this financial woes? God, can you get me a new job? God, can you take care of my friend? God, 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 when we take Him out. But then when we don't want Him to see what we're doing or we feel like we've got it under control, we plop Him right back in the box and shut the lid. I want you to understand that the God we serve is uncontainable and the God we serve is beyond understanding. But I'm not sure we always live that way. In fact, if you look at the prayer I mentioned earlier, it says this also in the same prayer, Ephesians chapter 3, 18 and 19, and you may have the power, he's asking in prayer, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Now listen to what it says. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Jesus is God. If we allow Him to be God of our lives, do we do what He says? Do we listen? If a voice from heaven told you today, you heard it, split open the clouds, the voice of God called down to you and said, I want you to talk to your neighbor about me. Would you do it? Well, I want you to understand a voice from heaven has done that. His name is Jesus. He's told you to do that. To do that. I'm God, he tells them. Now the next scene. The next thing you're familiar with as well. Jesus is walking around. He's calling some more disciples. He calls this guy named Levi. Also got another name. Anybody know his other name? Matthew, you got it. So he calls Matthew or Levi, who is a tax collector. Levi immediately leaves his tax stand. He goes with Jesus and he says, boy, this is awesome. So what do you do when you're excited about something new? You throw a party, which is exactly what he does. And he invites all his friends. Now, the tax collector's friends in his day would have been all the sinners because no one else wanted to hang out with the tax collector. So his friends are the sinful people. And in fact, the Religious leaders, now I don't know why the religious leaders are at this party, but here they are. And they say to Jesus, why are you hanging out and eating with this scum? Well, what's wrong with you? And if you remember, Jesus says this, Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus heard, heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. You think you're healthy, he says to them. You think you don't need me. So you don't understand why the doctor comes to the sick who, knows the, who know they are sick. 
Jesus has a proclamation here. Jesus proclaims this. Protecting reputation isn't the goal. Salvation is the goal. Protecting our reputation isn't the goal. Salvation is the goal. He knew that if he hung out with sinners, that people are going to look at him. Those who think they are righteous are going to look at him and be critical. He knew that. But he came for sinners. And how do you reach out to sinners if you're not around sinners? See, these religious leaders felt like they were righteous because they kept all sorts of scribal laws, things that they had manufactured themselves. And for Jesus just to hang out with a sinner at least spoke to them that he must be one too. You know, Jesus hanging out with a sinner, he must, he must be a sinner too, they say. Now we think that's so silly when we look at this text, but, but think about all the things we do. Well, what would you think if you saw me down there at Capone's hanging out one night? Oh, the preacher's out there getting drunk. That's what you'd think. By the way, I'm going to show up Capone's and see if you're there. No, <laughs> you never know. You never know. One of these Fridays or Saturday night, if you're in there, you'll see me walking in there. Hey, what are you doing? You're out here witnessing, aren't you? That's right. That's right. I'll keep an eye on you. No. Well, if you saw me in the midst of the you know, the, the homosexual community or, the, or, or in the midst of some kind of group of people that are involved in committing adultery or, or in the midst of fornicators, which is anyone who per, per, uh, participates in sexual sin outside of marriage in any other way, you know, that pretty much will get them all in the same thing. What if, you know, what if you see me there? What are you going to say? Well, he must, he must be participating in that stuff, right? In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And, and He actually gives us the same ministry, to seek and to save those who are lost. And I don't know about you, but seek sounds a lot like, to me, like that we're supposed to go where sinners are. I, I'm not sure how else you seek something unless you are actually trying to track it down. In the church for far too long, we think if we put out a little cool sign on the, on the front of the church building that people are going to come in to find out what's going on. You know, put something really neat out, out on the church building and they're going to be like, whoa, man, that sign's awesome. I think I'll go in there. That's not how it works. You go track them down. You go tell them about Jesus and you bring them in here. That's how it works. You seek them. And then you save them by lovingly leading them to Jesus, the only one who can save them. And by the way, the truth is, Jesus essentially is saying this, who cares what people think? Who cares? I'm only concerned with what God thinks. I'm only concerned about what God thinks. One more scene I want to paint for you this morning, and it's this. The last scene we want to look at today is Jesus and the disciples walking around on the Sabbath day. Now, we all hopefully understand that in that day, the Sabbath day was a day of worship. So on the Sabbath day, Saturday, they were walking and walking through the field, apparently. And what were the disciples doing? They were breaking off, snapping off the heads of grain and snacking on it, you know, like popcorn or whatever else. That's what they're doing. The religious leaders see this. Once again, what are the religious leaders doing there? I, I don't know. But they see this. 
And they ask Jesus, why are your disciples breaking the law? Why are your disciples breaking a law? Now, once again, the disciples aren't actually breaking the law. What they're actually breaking is the scribal law, the extra things that man added to God's law, which isn't God's law at all. If I add it to, it's worthless. So they weren't actually breaking the law. And by the way, Jesus actually gives them an example of where David broke, quote, broke the law to feed his men, to feed his men, so Jesus makes this proclamation. By the way, there were thousands of written laws that the scribes added to God's word. How could you keep up with all of them? But nonetheless, Jesus added this to the list. By the way, I forgot to put this on the screen. So you're just going to have to listen to me or look at your Bible. Here it is. Jesus said to them, verse 27, 28, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath, which leads to the last proclamation I think we need to look at today, and that is this. Human need is more important than religious ritual or religious deed. The religious experts felt like the actions of the, of the disciples was a grievous sin, which could actually lead to their destruction. We think that's so silly. And yet how often has religious ritual, ritual usurped human need? We're driving to church worship service one morning, and as we go by, we see a, a little lady out there with a flat tire. And what do we do? I'm late for worship. <laughs> she has a cell phone. Come on. She's got to call somebody, right? We don't stop. We don't help. We, we make up other rituals. Hey, you know what? Uh, you, you can't drink that in the auditorium, in the, in the sanctuary. By the way, we're the sanctuary. Every time you drink, you're drinking something into the sanctuary because you're it. Nonetheless, you can't drink that in the sanctuary. What's wrong with you? I've actually heard people say, you believe that church down there? They have drums and they clap their hands and, and some of them people, they raise their they raise their hands. Ooh. 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 Who made these rules? Who came up with this stuff? Let me say it wasn't God. For instance, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14 says this, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. You know, he's dancing before the Lord. Yeah, a little bit later. He says, by the way, I'd become even more undignified than this if it's for the Lord. He says, don't judge me. This is for God, not you, which I didn't even mention dancing. Psalm 63, 1 through 4. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon you. Your power and glory, your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I, how I praise you. And now listen. I will praise you as long as I live Lifting up my hands to you in prayer. Amen. 
You might say, well, that song's not a prayer. Well, what is a prayer besides talking to God? That song sure is a prayer if you allow it to be a prayer. Or what about this verse? Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heaven. Praise Him for His mighty works. Praise His unequaled greatness. And then it tells you how. Praise Him with the blast of the ram's horn. Praise Him with the lyre and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with strings and flutes. It goes on. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with loud clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes sing praises to the Lord. Praise the Lord. I don't know about you. We have quite a few instruments up there. There's a whole lot more instruments mentioned there. And by the way, drums is one of them. Well, at least cymbals. We added the drums with the cymbals. It's a package deal, but nonetheless. I want you to understand my preferences and your preferences are not more important than people ever. Never. They will never be more important than people. In fact, people always, uh, Jesus always put people before religious practice. Matthew 9, 13, he says, Now go and learn the meaning of this Scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. He says, I want you to show mercy. Mercy is what we're looking for. Not religious ritual. Mercy. In fact, God's Word proclaims that taking care of people is exactly how we live out the religion we proclaim in James 1, verse 27, it says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Refusing to let the world corrupt you. Joseph Roy says it like this, A true Christian is a sign of contradiction, a living symbol of the cross. He or she is a person who believes the unbelievable, who bears the unbearable, who forgives the unforgivable, who loves the unlovable, who is perfectly happy not being perfect, who is willing to give up his or her will, who becomes weak to be strong and finds love by giving it away. See, here's my question. We look at Jesus. We're all excited about what Jesus says, what Jesus does. But are we ready to be stretched Allowing the teaching of Jesus to mold us and make us how He wants us to be. See, it's all, it's all fine and dandy to say, Amen, brother. But what about I conform? I, I'll be transformed. I, I want you to mold me like you are, Jesus. Are you willing to put reputation aside on the line to save souls? To be quite frank, if you're doing something for the Lord, who cares what I think about it? As long as it's not breaking what Scripture says, who cares what I think? What does God think about it? That's what we care about. Are people more important to you than just religious ritual or preference? In fact, I guess really it all boils down to this. Is Jesus God of your life or not? Is Jesus God or not? Cornelius uh, Plantinga Jr. in Assurance of the Heart writes this, We do not want suffering, we want success. 
We identify not with those who are low and hurt, but with those who are high and healthy. We don't like lepers or losers very well. We prefer climbers and comers. For Christians, the temptation to be conformed to the world is desperately sweet and strong. Yet say, yet says the Apostle Paul, we are children of God if we suffer with Christ. God does not give his hardest assignments to his weakest children. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Has Jesus blown your mind or not? Has your thinking been completely destroyed because of the mind of Christ in your life?